This is a space where we explore what it means to live our nature. Vibrant, multidimensional, attuned, creative, in collaboration with nature. Because this is how we experience the fullness of life and relationships, love and creative expression. And I believe that living our lives in this way, as a kind of practice of inhabiting our wholeness, is also how we offer our greatest contributions to the collective. I'm Gray Tanner, and this is The Luminous Slow. Hello, everyone, and happy January 11th. I'm coming to you ahead of the episode because the original recording ended up being about three hours in length, which I did not intend. And so I've opted ultimately to split the episode into two parts and find the best place in the conversation to do that. And I'm also sitting here, uh, I want to share something is coming through today. I'm sitting here on what is the morning of the new moon and on January 11th, the date is 1-11. And as I was recording the episode last night, like late into the morning, it was just taking me a lot longer to get the episode out that I was thinking and that I was originally planning. And so the, the date kept getting pushed back and I ended up not recording until late last night, finishing in the wee hours of the morning here on January 11th, so I, I realized that I was going to be sharing the episode today. And uh, when I saw the date, I thought it was just kind of cute, because episode zero, where we launched, was on the 21st of December, the winter solstice. And the follow-up episode ended up launching on the 31st. So I just noticed the dates, 21, 31, and then 11, 11, 21, 31. And I thought that was kind of amusing. And and I realized uh, after that that today is the new moon, which of course is the phase where we have the darkest nights of the month. And that got me thinking that I launched the pod on the winter solstice, the darkest because longest night of the year. So two dark, two dark nights sharing some episodes with you and oh and I don't usually stay up all that late but for both of these episodes these dark night episodes I've shared both were recorded in the depth of the night like today's I finished recording about three o'clock in the morning and the one on launch day I recorded also until like three or four in the morning and then was up like till six or something um, getting it all published and which like to be honest unless I'm out at like Burning Man or some kind of festival space like, and usually uh, energetically assisted I'm not up at these hours of the night so I have no idea why but this is how my process has ended up flowing this um, so I was just noticing this like darkness within darkness within darkness and this metaphor in the the one episode between these two came on New Year's Eve, which I didn't originally plan to share. It was 
that night was a waning gibbous moon phase, which is the phase just after the full moon. So this is one of our more bright nights in the month. And then we're like ending the year, you know, going out with a bang and literal fireworks. So I just noticed this then like dark, light, dark trajectory through through the shares that I've had. And, and this all just really like, I started to notice these little details because of the, the content of this episode that you're going to be listening to. And I realized that not only am I sharing this episode with you on 111 on a new moon, but it's also 111 2024, which if the digits of the full date are added together, equals 11. And the number 11 in numerology is considered a master number. So this day, 111, 111, it's also what's called a portal day. So two numbers of the same digit, this is, um, as I understand, a master number. And then if you have three-digit numbers that are all the same number, these are believed to hold these like powerful energetic vibrations that, that act as a kind of indication or a signal to this kind of cosmic alignment, if you will, of energies. So with these master numbers, today we have 11, they hold a special significance because they're believed to hold double the, num- the power of the number of whatever they reduce to. So whatever energetic tendency is associated is amplified or doubled. And a three-digit number of the same prime number, today 111, these are called portal days. And the concept here is that these dates indicate an alignment of particular energies that open a kind of energetic channel. Okay, so the number 11 in numerology is believed to be a master intuitive number. So it's associated with intuition, alignment, enlightenment, this uh, sense of limitlessness and illumination. And then the portal of 111 is associated with beginnings, birthing, creation. And because this 111 portal, this day in which we open to what's believed to be a particular pathway, like to particular qualities and experiences, that's also on a date that itself is a master number, 11. It's like supercharged, right? The energetic qualities are supercharged. So today in 2024, the 111 portal is considered especially potent where um, in the realms of like accessing guidance from all of the unseen and birthing uh, from what is held there. Like this is considered especially available to us, right? So I'm like reading about a number of these numerology things um, about and about today. And like, I'm just starting to notice these little details all coming together really quickly. And I, I hadn't realized I'd be sharing what I'm sharing on a portal day. And I didn't realize actually like the digits were all adding up to this master number 
at 11 until I was like sitting down in my studio. Um, again, like now after having had a few hours of sleep and some morning coffee to do some editing and post the podcast that I, um, that I saw a post about the portal day and, and started reading and all this. So I, I just started fucking laughing because I'm, uh, I'm thinking about all of these, what are, what seeming like little synchronicities are all in line with these kinds of themes that I explore in the episode itself that's releasing today. And not only about these kind of qualities um, and, and the cultivation of them generally, I think, like within ourselves and as humans, but there's also so much thematically within my personal story about cultivating and experiencing some of these qualities, you know, of intuition, of aligning with different energies and intelligences, and of expansion and limitlessness and this and enlightenment by which I mean, you know, uh, just coming more online to my life and my light. And also, I, I go really dark in this episode and in sh- sharing some of my personal story. Like, I'm taking you down into the depths of some of my deepest pains. And I share with you some of how that that going into the darkness became a kind of new beginning for me. So, so I began to imagine as I was reading about this day and then noticing all the synchronicities that this darkest part of the episode that explores the darkness, that explores the, the darkness as a pathway to light, the darkest part of that episode is a story about a new kind of beginning for me in my life. So that gave me then the sense of like that being like the new moon phase of the episode, the seed, if you will. And so again, it's just like all weaving into these themes of the day, the themes of the portal, the themes of the episode itself, the the themes of my own personal journey. And then finally, I, I come back to intuition. And I thought about how this episode took a very different turn than I imagined. And at first I sat down to make notes about it, like probably a couple of weeks or so before I started recording the uh, the last one. And so I thought I had already a lot of the contours in the bank. And I was just going to be organizing thoughts and things and and started to but when I actually started to get into doing that, then I just started following all these threads in my mind that kept presenting. And so it took several days of just working through and um and writing all these different things that I wasn't even sure were going together and making some linkages and things like that, that I could then distill to be able to share with you. And I'm actually very surprised at what I ended up sharing and where I ended up going. And I'm surprised by the, the level of vulnerability and rawness that I offered in some of this episode, this episode space and like that it was so soon 
uh, after launching the podcast. Like surprising because a lot of the journey that it's taken to get here and to sit in the chair and even share myself and my process and my mind. And I questioned at times sharing some of what I was and if it was like all appropriate for the now and things and if it made sense and things and if it was too weird and things, you know. Um, and I questioned if I really wanted to reveal as much about myself and my process as I ended up doing. So there was this, this bit of like internal grappling was going on too. But ultimately, what I was doing through the creation of this episode was following a lot of my intuition. And I just felt like the thing that I needed to do and share it felt like the thing I needed to do and share at, at this time and on this day and that I ended up staying late because th that was the flow to record it and I didn't plan to have such a late night but it just felt like it needed to come through. Again, like, given all that's contained and what's to come, I just found myself, like, fucking laughing this morning at all of these, what I feel like, synchronicities. And... And also because I don't know if any of this means anything, you know, like the timing of all of these, the way that all of this stuff has come forward for me and, and on days that I didn't plan and after every single episode coming with delays and rabbit holes and things and all the things like, I don't know if I'm connecting all these dots in a way today. I don't know if this is anything to even be talking about. And but as I share in the episode, like a lot of the themes of this are really about opening ourselves to different systems of understanding and intelligence, energetic pathways, like applying different filters to our lenses and allowing what is revealed to us to guide us in the direction of our enlightenment, our enlivenment. So there's a question. And what I've learned is that there's so much that we don't know, that we think we know that we don't know. And again, as I share in a lot of different ways, through the exploration of science and spirit and philosophy, this concept of veiled wisdom or veiled intelligence And there's this, how this, there's this prevalence of systems of intelligence and wisdom that we don't conventionally have access to, that we can open ourselves to. So I don't fucking know if numerology is a thing. Um, I wouldn't say I'm big into this, but it's a system of understanding that I've slowly, that's like slowly been penetrating me, I guess, over the years where I've just found myself noticing numbers more and more and noticing um, that I have curiosities about them and then doing reading. And so I've had this, um, I've had this grow, this curiosity about whether there is any sort of channel available through the placement of these kinds of occurrences, if you will, like in our field of awareness, um, or this location in time space or whatever. 
And um, also, I'm sorry, my fucking phone keeps blowing up. I don't usually receive all these texts. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm noticing all these things. And it all seems to be in alignment with all of this other shit that's here, that's somehow presenting into my consciousness. And and truthfully, as I'm talking about all of these, what of all of what feel like these synchronistic occurrences, like even just sharing all of this with you feels vulnerable because I don't fucking know if I'm talking about anything, you know, and because I'm probably going to need to get a way down the road in my life to be able to look back and see if there was anything to this moment in time. Like from my personal experience or the collective or whatever. So yeah, but just like, but I also just kind of felt like I should share this, um, whatever it is. And, and because it feels like fun and curious and there's a, there's this little spark of something interesting to me. And that's why I'm ultimately sharing this. Like it just gave me a chuckle. And I also just want to kind of plant this seed because of the context and what feels like a kind of opening a channel within me um, to share into my depths, um, this unexpected opening and on what is a day about opening a channel. And I mentioned when I launched the podcast that that it's in part a kind of experiment, like in real time, and a way to sort of mark certain things, like a journal and a timeline for me, this this digital material. And I'm really excited to see what unfolds for me in my life and for the people with whom I'm sharing and all the things, and that that only at some later point I'll be able to have a greater sense of. And I guess the other thing, what I'm sharing here is um, just about us opening our channels, like opening to the flow of information and intelligence that is all around and through us. And that it's in going to, I've learned into the darkest dark that we can liberate energy and open the channel that like this is what allows us to be available to all of the light energy that's running in and through us that that is the fabric of the universe as we understand it that's that is a conduit then for all of the information that that we have and that we receive and that we offer so this is about being a conduit within a conduit and I'm guessing I, I did say when I launched the pod that there was going to be a lot of play here, like playing with ideas and our constructs. And so giving some air to these words and, and letting y'all see how my mind works and, uh, and giving air to what maybe nothing, but is a curiosity and um, following threads. And, and this is that, and it feels, um, it feels like a different layer of vulnerability to to reveal a, a certain architecture of my my own mind and processes. Uh, but like 
also I'm like, fuck it. This is also part of the creative process and um, giving a peek into that and, and of art as well. That, you know, that as artists and creators, we don't always know where we're going in the process. It's so, it's so often driven by intuition. And it's, um, it's making me think of this quote from Rick Rubin, where he says that the audience comes last. And the audience comes last in service to the audience. And he goes on to talk about how our role as creators is to follow our processes and what wants to come through us to make the best thing that we can make or that feels most appropriate for the moment, the, the truest reflection of a moment. And that that moves us as artists and creators. And how the purpose of making art itself is to offer our unique lens on the world. And, and that it can be the lens of a moment in time. Maybe it doesn't have to be so big, but it can be the lens of a moment in time. And our only job is to offer that. Like offer the clearest transmission, if you will. And it's an offering that the, that the audience can receive the most pure art, which is what we want, right? We, we want art that feels true. So by service, by serving ourselves, I mean to say servicing, but we do that too. So by serving ourselves as creators and making what we love and what moves us and what, what is, what we are in flow with, we serve the audience. So of course I'm speaking here to those of you who like me create in certain ways that might be more conventionally considered art forms like those of us who dance and make visual art and write things and all of that but my perspective also is that we are all creators and that our lives are our art inherently it's just that a lot of us aren't conscious creators or we're not yet Like we're not creating the art that moves us and that we're and that we're not following the impulses of, of what is authentic to us because we're more focused on what the audience, i.e. others, may want. So I'm sharing what feels authentic to me and my process in a moment this morning. And um and we'll see where it goes. And uh, like, I feel like uh, Rick Rubin and Liz Gilbert, I, I think, um, I've heard talk about this. And so just kind of building on some of these earlier ideas from Rick that our job is to create. So, um, so Liz says this a lot too. Our job is to create and to share the thing. And what happens after that is none of our business. So thinking about all these, what feel like 
wise words from some of my own teachers and guides in creative living. This is what's helping me to hit record on this. You know, I guess it's the hit publish that would be the actual sharing part, but um, yeah, uh, I guess as is beginning to feel standard, this little episode intro is um, gone on longer than I planned and now it's kind of like I'm offering you more an essay ahead of a chapter or like a story within a story. Um, but I guess if you haven't um, picked up already, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of a slut for like multi-layered metaphor. <laughs> um, not kind of, seriously. Um, and like this is, I guess, just more podcast structural play, which I did sign up for too. So <clears throat> I'm amused and that's what this blathering on is. And maybe this... Uh, uh, maybe we'll just call this the amuse-bouche to the episode uh, uh, amuse-bouche is the French term for this the small morsel that's offered by the chef like um, chef's choice small bite thing before the main meal and uh, the I thought that the translation means to amuse the mouth and yeah, made me laugh so As it turns out, I guess we are having a multi-part meal today with this two-part episode. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, fucking hell. Um, so, well, this is me, and I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> um, thank you for being here, everyone. And I'm sure some of you are like, get to the fucking point already. So, um, here's the episode. Here we go. Uh, light to dark and dark to light. Here is part one of The Spark in the Machine. Hello, loves, and welcome. I'm going to jump right in because I've got a lot for your ear holes today. And I hope for some of your other parts, too. Today we're going to talk about the science of emotion nervous system science and the science of energy as well as energy medicine and our conventional medical system and i'm including all of that to support a larger conversation about how we do or don't understand our emotions and our bodies and how to be with and work with them and why that's valuable or not and we're going to talk specifically about grief, fear, and pain, and their relationships to the seasons that many of us are in now and moving through. And we will talk about why I think it's important to work with these feelings and emotions and the trauma that's associated with them. Why it's so important for our health and our healing, our vitality, our transformation. So there's, there's some building here, um, uh, particularly on last episode, last episode's conversations and themes. Though this is not exactly the episode content that I alluded to last time, where I mentioned that 
there would be more discussion about physiological responses in winter and habit change information and all of that. Um, things took a bit of a different turn as I was um, writing and, and contemplating this and I went with it, but that stuff will come eventually. I'm just learning here now in episode two that I'm, I'm just not going to make any promises content wise, unless shit is like already recorded and in the queue. So, um, yeah, so that will come. I don't know when. Um, but for today, we're going to start heady, uh, with some sciencey systems talk and we'll transition from there to the more embodied emotional and spiritual realms. And from there, descending into some dark depths. And in that space, I will be sharing some of my personal story about grief and trauma work. And I'll be, I'll be going pretty deep and vulnerable, sharing some things that I haven't shared openly before, even with close family and friends. And there will be mention of different violences, abuse and suicide and complex trauma associated with a lot of these things and, um, and just my long healing journey through all of the things. So I want to offer that heads up and primer, um, and, you know, if you choose to stick around and we will move through those depths out to the other side where finally, as we close the episode, I'm going to leave you with, with what I think is some beautiful art, uh, which is another of my all time favorite poems. Um, so this is going to be a longer conversation and we are going to do a good bit of that interdisciplinary weaving that I primed you for in episode zero. And I'm feeling pretty excited about it. Uh, and the way a lot of this has all unfolded for me and and just sharing that with you. And if you haven't experienced my more uh, Proustian weaving sort of narrative style before, um, that can involve a lot of description and meandering and things, I just want to preface with if it feels like I'm all over the place going in some weird directions, I encourage you to hang with me because I will bring the threads together and we'll go somewhere. Um, I'm leading you, I think, somewhere. <laughs> um, I'm leading you somewhere. I think it's a destination. You know, that remains to be seen for you. But I promise there will be a bringing together of the things. So I want to, to open this by talking a bit about how we tend to think about to conceptualize medicine and science and what kind of science we then base our medicine on. So how we've decided culturally and institutionally what's important and relevant, you know, like what's worth paying attention to or not. And what are some of the implications for us collectively and individually on those choices and things and what we think of as conventional or quote, Western medicine, allopathic medicine, like we have lots of names for it, 
we think of this as grounded in science. Okay? It has its basis in Newtonian physics, and the development of the whole paradigm that we use has come through study of the body and disease and treatments and whatnot. That's all been conducted using this science and its mechanisms and what we call the scientific method, right? And what, what others assert to be medicine or science that can't be understood or measured through, the, the, through that Newtonian lens, or all, all the tools of our conventional science, we've tended to dismiss as unscientific or mysterious or esoteric or woo-woo, you know. And so we often don't consider what, what operates outside this, quote, science, than to be true medicine or whatever. And you can probably think of some examples of this. You know, traditional Chinese medicine, sometimes TCM, come, often comes to mind. There, there are many. Um, and, but I'm going to use TCM as a, a specific example today. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So traditional Chinese medicine is a 3000 year old plus form of energy medicine. And it's responsible for a lot of our familiarity in the Western world with yin and yang as these dynamics or energy polarities. And TCM offers this kind of correspondence of certain of Earth's seasons with emotions uh, or of emotions with certain parts of the body or organs, etc. And it's this particular system of intelligence, this energy science on which the practice of acupuncture is based. So I imagine a lot of us are familiar with, with these things. And so I grew up in mainstream American culture, I would say, and really all I ever heard about Chinese medicine was that it was not real medicine or science, and that acupuncture was all woo-woo and weird, and TCM practitioners are snake oil salesmen and this kind of stuff. And I would say most people, most of the people I've encountered thought similarly, and I don't think I ever knew a single person who had received acupuncture treatment until like 15 years ago or so. And because in the mainstream, we've decided that TCM is not based on real science, and I'm using quotes here, many of us have never considered turning to it for wellness support because we associate medicine with science. And we've not paid a lot of attention to other modalities that maybe have the same whiff of woo-woo as TCM. But so we just, we go to our mainstream doctors, we trust the hard science. But this 3000 year old tradition has more recently come to the attention of those in the conventional medicine and science spaces. So there's this cellular biologist and research scientist, his name's Bruce Lipton. And he's a pioneer in the realm of what we're calling the scientific study of the mind-body-spirit connection. Um, and he wrote this book, this amazing book, called The Biology of Belief. 
It was first published almost 20 years ago. Okay. And this changed a lot in the field of biology and, and a fundamental, fundamental understanding of how DNA functions through his research and synthesis of cellular biology with quantum physics, you know, the physics of energy. So this combination of cellular biology and energy, energy science. And in this book, he indicates that the tradition of Chinese medicine, despite being dismissed as unscientific, is actually based on a deeper understanding of the universe than our Western medicine is. So he wrote, for thousands of years, long before Western scientists discovered the laws of quantum physics, Asians have honored energy as the principal factor in contributing to health and well-being. In Eastern medicine, the body is defined by an elaborate array of energy pathways called meridians. In Chinese physiologic charts of the human body, these energy networks resemble electronic wiring diagrams. Using aids like acupuncture needles, Chinese physicians test their patients' energy circuits in the exact same manner that electrical engineers troubleshoot an electric circuit board, searching for electrical pathologies." End quote. So again, this was published almost 20 years ago in 2005. Cellular biologist saying this. Um, fast forward to now 2023-ish and I'm hearing Andrew Huberman, who is a prominent neuroscientist at Stanford, recently talking on his podcast called the Huberman Lab. He's talking about the, the science of energy medicine and modalities and practices like acupuncture and TCM. And if you're not familiar with, with Huberman and his work, he's someone who's all about the clinical data. Like much of what he shares on his podcast is based on these meta-analyses and findings that are published in academic and scientific journals and what what's referred to as peer-reviewed clinical research so this so he's sourcing from this research that to be considered for publication has to pass evaluation by other scientists and researchers in the field so in our current paradigm because of this level of rigor required peer-reviewed research is considered the, the most legit, the most reliable. Okay, so this is top-tier shit from our Western, heady scientific perspective um, that, that Huberman's drawing on as he's now talking about these modalities and systems. And in more recent years, like more of this clinical research has been being conducted in the realm of energy medicine and on some of these more alternative medicine modalities and practices, because more and more people have come to think it's worth exploring and paying attention to, you know, the ones who fund the science, fund research and all of this. And so there's more of this kind of what we think of as hard data coming to the fore in the conventional medicine space. And what we're finding is that a lot of our modern science, Yen quotes here, is corroborating what this ancient technology of traditional Chinese medicine and its practices have long known about the nature of our body minds, about our world, and by extension, our universe, right? And that 
we in the mainstream West have long dismissed or disparaged, right? Just like this research scientist Bruce Lipton was saying 20 plus years ago. So there's all that. And another thing around our systems is that, that I wanna to touch on is how the practice of medicine relates to the science on which our medicine is based um, and the science of medicine. So practice tends to be way behind the science, meaning that what doctors are talking about with patients and the interventions and treatments they're offering or will even consider offering are about 10 to 20 years behind the research findings and whatever then might be the currently accepted understandings in the scientific communities from which that research comes. So according to the National Institutes of Health in the US, the average is 17 years for research evidence to reach clinical practice. And I think this, this makes sense, right? Because our scientists are, it makes some sense anyway. Our scientists are at the frontiers. Their work is to explore and conclude and evolve the systems. And then we integrate this new understanding and they move on to the next phase of research or new frontiers entirely or whatever. So first, the scientists study and conclude then they publish for their peers and the larger scientific and medical community, which is then where the medical and training institutions source their material to adopt and integrate new information and adjust policies and curricula and all that. And then that usually makes its way to the medical students and thus doctors and clinicians. And for a lot of systemic reasons that we won't go into today, this trickle-down process takes a long time. So, like I said, average of 17 years. So, the most recent example of my hearing about this, what I'm gonna call lag phenomenon, from those within the field came from my, my listening to a recent Huberman Lab episode. Um, yes, I love him. Yes, I fangirl. Um, yeah, this episode with Rick Rubin, who's a well-known music producer. And these two men are friends and they were talking about our conventional system and what we think we know and how that impacts us. And they were retelling about a conversation they had with a man called Eddie Chang, who is the, neuros the chair of neurosurgery at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. And this is someone Huberman said during the pod that he would place in the top 1% of neuroscientists. So Rick is asking Eddie Chang, if you went to medical school today, and you learned what was in the textbook today, what percentage of that information is accurate and what percentage is not? 
And Chang says, maybe half. To which Reuben asks, and what is the consequence of that? And Chang says, incalculable. And then Andrew Huberman chimes in and he says, and I completely agree. So according to two of arguably the most prominent neuroscientists in the world, the physicians and clinicians with the most quote, current information are only maybe halfway accurate with incalculable consequences on us and our systems. And if we think about it, a lot of us aren't going to physicians and clinicians who are fresh out of medical school. They're ones who have been at this sometimes decades. And a lot of times that's because we think they're better and more up on things and advancements and like more trustworthy and all the things, like if they're specialists or whatever. So I think we have to consider how outmoded may be their understandings and therefore their practices. And then beyond all of that, our conventional system, this paradigm, the paradigm itself, is very compartmentalized. So we operate in this very siloed way where the body and the brain are broken into compartments, which then become medical specializations. So many of those who we then go to consult for wellness support and healing have been trained to see all these parts as separate and to focus on a specific one or ones. And so by design, they're not even doing a lot of looking outside of their sphere for the existence of other relationships that might exist or information from other areas that might inform or support what they're doing. Because at some point, those have been deemed in the medical history and trainings to be unimportant or irrelevant or bunk. And indeed, they're disincentivized in many ways. We're not going to talk about all of the ways, but they're disincentivized in many ways to operate otherwise. And this kind of model has been shifting. And yes, there are exceptions. And yes, there is more nuance to all this than I'm offering right now. But the main thing here is that, by and large, our conventional medicine practitioners are operating with a lot of incomplete understanding. Which I don't think a lot of us are even really aware of. Like, how much it is that they don't know. Which, as a consequence, many of us don't know, since historically we've relied primarily on our professionals to be the ones to transmit information and to educate and advise us in the realms of health and well-being. Because we've been taught that our doctors are the experts and we're meant to revere them, defer to their authority, and they get paid a lot of money so they must know things, etc. You know, this is our entrenched cultural thinking that we're all susceptible to, I think. But these experts, some of whom some of us rely on solely for our wellness support, you know, we're like firmly within the conventional medical system and maybe only have one doctor. These experts are doing a lot of blind flying 
or semi-blind anyway. And I'll say I have enormous respect for physicians and a lot of our allopathic conventional medicine and modern technologies and whatnot. And I think there are many ways that they can and do support us. So by no means am I say, am I suggesting that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And a lot of my mission here is to help others understand that these kind of institutional gaps, gaping holes really, that they exist and how to do some conceptual reframing around the systems of the body-mind and what it is that we consider to be medicine and wellness, what we consider worthy of our attention. And where else we can look, how to supplement what's missing, and ultimately how to develop more integrative approaches. So that's a bit on the institutional system design, I think, and how we think about medicine and wellness and some of its implications. Last episode, we talked about emotions as bodily experience. And it's relatively modern science that demonstrates this, like insofar as we, we can chemically measure emotions and indicate them through digital imaging, like brain scans and body scans and stuff. And for a long time, we've understood emotions more culturally as experiences happening kind of at the level of the mind or the purview of the mind of this kind of ethereal sort of thing. Though I think we've also associated some with areas of the body, like love, for example. And it's its relation to the heart or the heart center area of the body. And we can also at times experience love viscerally in this area, where then this becomes the feeling that the sensory experience, the feeling that accompanies the emotion. And at the same time, we've also had these narratives of, of a kind of distrust of emotions, right? Like how we have this historical elevation of head over heart, or the ways we've sometimes dismissed gut feelings or intuition as these kinds of things that that can't be trusted over what our minds might be saying. And this cultural narrative that I'm talking about, I think is more mainstream US and European historical rhetoric, not necessarily indigenous cultures and world cultural and all of that. But like, in the Victorian era, one of the main ideas was that emotions were meant to be governed by reason and self-control. Right? So this is, I'm talking about the purview of the mind. And so there's been this cultural legacy of understanding that while maybe more diffuse and unconscious is in us still in a lot of ways. So to drop in a bit to the, the science of emotions, I'm going to read a passage from a Library of Congress keynote address um, from 2022. 
It's called The Science of Emotion, and it was authored by Dr. Antonio Damasio, the head of Department of Neurology at the University of Iowa College of Medicine. And he shared, emotion is a very adaptive form of physiological response, and it regulates our lives. Emotion is expressed largely in the theater of the body through posture and facial expression, as well as through such internal processes as heart rate and blood pressure. Moreover, all these bodily responses are fed back to the brain through neural channels, as well as humoral channels, which bypass neural signaling. To understand how emotions work on the body, we must differentiate emotion from feeling. When we experience any of the primary emotions, sadness, happiness, anger, fear, surprise, disgust, our experiences express themselves physically in ways that can be observed by another person. Feelings, by contrast, are our conscious perception of all those changes happening in the body and of very subtle changes that are happening in the way, of, in the way our cognitive apparatus functions. Most of what happens when an emotion is elicited happens non-consciously. Often, our body may already be in a state that represents anger before we know what is making us angry. The creation of this body state is automatic, largely preset by our genes to respond not to a particular thing, but to certain categories of things. For instance, when we generate states of fear or anger or disgust or happiness, we produce withdrawal behaviors or approach behaviors that have been preserved through evolution because they have proved advantageous to survival. We have inherited this system for sorting out what is good and what is bad automatically in order to preserve ourselves. The power of such non-conscious processing is enormous. Many studies have shown that in normal individuals, the amygdala, a brain structure intimately involved in the fear response and recognizing fear, will be activated even when a person is not consciously aware of having been presented with a fearful stimulus. The brain can pick up a signal that is well masked at the conscious level. End quote. So emotions are a physiological or bodily response. And sometimes we have perceived feeling states associated with those, but a lot of that happens in the body as a consequence of emotional activation, and it happens beyond our conscious awareness of it. So here's where I want to layer in a little nervous system science. And we are going to do a lot of exploration of the nervous system on pod. Today is not a deep dive, but I am going to share a few more top level things as they relate to physical and mental health, behavior, trauma, and in some later episodes, we'll talk more about the structure and functions of the nervous system and their many implications for pretty much every damn thing in our lives. Um, because the nervous system we can think of as our operating system. So it's designed to field, process, interpret all of the information, all of the data in our environments, 
everything that is present in outer environments and in our bodies. And it relies on our five senses to transmit information and also to trigger certain reactions in the body. And it does all of this through the pathways of our nerves and neurons using electrical impulses or light energy. The light energy governing the system that is responsible for much of what we do. Is this beginning to sound like anything that I mentioned earlier? TCM circuitry, perhaps? Um, so it's, it's this astounding amount of data, effectively, that the nervous system is responsible for paying attention to and analyzing in any moment. And the nervous system has to decide through these complex processes what to communicate to the different parts of the body, including the brain, and when, and like when that will happen, and then what is considered important or relevant enough in any given moment to be transmitted through to conscious awareness and sensory perception, meaning to feel consciously through our five senses. So it has this filtering system. And the most relevant, most important things, whatever's been deemed that, pass through the filter to the level of the conscious mind and or to our felt sense experience, our five senses. And all the rest of the information processing and transmission happens subconsciously because our minds and sense, uh, senses are only capable of so much conscious processing at once. It's like, it's an efficiencies and maintenance thing to prevent overwhelm. So most of what the system is doing is running in the background of what are our computers, our body-mind systems. Lots of complex shit happening very quickly. It's all automated. And the current estimates are that only between two and 5% of all of that activity we're ever aware of or can consciously perceive like in real time. So consider that means that everything you can see and make sense of in your environment, what you are touching and feeling and hearing and whatever of the average 60,000 thoughts per day we have that you notice Everything you are conscious of is less than 5% of what your body-mind is actually experiencing. Said another way, 95 to 98% of all we do, all we think, all we feel, how we act is on autopilot. Like, that blows my fucking mind. That blew my mind when I learned that. I don't know about you, but like, I don't know about you, but I, I spent most of my life thinking that my brain was running the show. And I thought that the brain was doing a lot of the processing and the interpretation for me and doing more of this signaling from head down to body. And then it was about six or seven years ago when I was uh, back when I was actively teaching yoga and mindfulness, 
I took my first professional training in the nervous system and its application to restorative yoga. And I got this, I got this week long crash course from two teachers, one of whom is a practicing neurosurgeon and, uh, and also a teacher, a yoga practitioner. And it blew my fucking mind. And later I would realize like my whole fucking life, like wide open. So we studied neuroscience and neurobiology and I, and it was incredible. And I learned that not only is the body via the nervous system, the one that's really in charge, but that a lot of the communications happen body to mind, the opposite direction where I was thinking this was going. And so it, I learned how much I didn't know about the body, my body, and a lot of life itself as a consequence. So I think it's, it's good, I think, to understand that we really are automatons in a lot of ways. And what I think for today beyond that is important to understand is about the nervous system is that the coding of this operating system, the circuitry, that happens primarily during our youth. So this is why our childhood and young adult experiences have such an impact on who we become and our personality development and like our life and relationship trajectories and all the rest. Okay, so our emotions are experienced primarily in our bodies and the processing and communication of those physiological responses is happening through the nervous system and we are largely unconscious to any of it. And because the system and the processes were coded early in life and are largely unconscious to us, we're running on a lot of old and sometimes unsupportive programming that we aren't even aware of. So for example, if you were taught from a young age that sadness and pain are bad to feel, or that you shouldn't feel them. And there are reinforcements from your environment, like your parents, that you might, then you might have developed guilt or shame around experiencing them, or felt the need to hide them or downplay them. And thus develop these kind of adaptations within your nervous system to the experience of those emotions and feelings this categorizing them as bad or wrong or not worth paying attention to. And then there may have been this, this stifling at the conscious level, the experiences of them, right? Because the system decides what's important and most relevant, and then it allows it through. So if they, if these do get through the filter, so to speak, we might then consciously attempt to deflect or suppress them or to distract ourselves from them when they do arise. So we get into this kind of tussle with our physiology and our emotions. But again, whether we ever get to be conscious of them 
they're still being experienced in the body, right? these emotions. So last time I talked about how a lot of us have these patterned behaviors of avoiding feeling our feelings. And these are these chronic ways of moving through the world and we then accumulate over time this kind of backlog of unfelt feelings and emotions. And after doing that long enough, we can develop all sorts of physical and mental symptoms of the backlog, which can look like chronic pain and brain fog, anxiety, depression, sleep disturbances, chronic fatigue, headaches, ADHD, emotional reactivity, autoimmune issues and disease, and on and on and on. Because what we're ultimately carrying in our bodies through all of this unfelt, unexpressed, unconscious stuff is chronic stress. And we'll talk more about the stress response and chronic stress states in another conversation. I think that's really important, um, but for another time. Um, but over the years and the decades of effectively training our bodies to conceal from our conscious awareness and perceptions, our emotions and feelings, the whole system eventually becomes overloaded and begins to dis display dysfunction, you know, like slowdown and disease and, and pain and all of that. And a lot of the time, it seems, we won't make the connection between the physical and mental health symptoms and this chronic psychosomatic mind-body stress because we're mostly unaware of what's going on beneath the surface. Like we, we only have so much processing power and memory within this computer hardware. And we are, as I said before, designed to allow our physiologic and emotional responses to flow and move through us because emotions are energy and energy wants to move. Right. So these are some of the systems then coming into the, some of this machinery of the body and the science of this circuitry. And on that note, I want to jump into energy medicine and some of these seasonal themes and feelings and things, some of which we talked a little bit about last time. So my views on energy medicine and TCM have shifted a lot over the years. And if you've been with me for like more than five minutes, probably you've heard me talk about energy in some form. But uh, I think a lot of you all in my field currently, um, you know, professionally, socially, through social media, all of this. I don't, I don't know that a lot of y'all know me, or you didn't know me, I should say, in my former life. Like, I used to be cerebral, rational brain as fuck. Like, former academic, trained research scientist, analyst type. And after having grown up evangelical Christian... Mormon specifically, after having grown up in that and leaving that, I swung pretty hard 
in the direction of the material and science. And I did not have a lot of love or time for spirituality and paganism and Eastern philosophies and religion and all of this. And yoga and meditation was obviously woo-woo, says the person who went on to become a teacher of both. But um, I was I was agnostic uh, and flirting pretty hard for a time with atheism. And I was just like an intellectual and lived most of my life for like a solid decade, I would say, from the neck up. And I, which I didn't know exactly was what was going on. Um, I still felt like I was in my body, but I was like, I was living pretty hard in the head. So I would say I've traveled a long way and I've been like, I've been practicing energy medicine in different forms for many years now. And in the last few years, like more formally studying and, you know, following the science of it. And it's become increasingly important in my life and my wellness toolkit. And really I attribute a lot of my transformation over this last decade in the in the realms of physical and mental health and trauma healing, self-actualization, to the integration of energy work and medicine, of which I include the nervous system, the nervous system work. And so I've moved pretty way away from the allopathic model and toward a more integrative wellness model. And I would, I would develop, I would say, a, a voracious appetite for learning more and integrating yet more modalities and practices into my life and work. Like it's, it's been very profound for me. So Chinese medicine is this energy medicine system. And again, it's 3,000 years old. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that that its way of conceptualizing the body and phenomena and disease and all of that, that it can feel foreign and weird, like of a different time and place. And when I was first learning about it, I, I struggled to connect with the concepts and its mechanisms. And I was like, what the fuck does any of this mean? And stuff like it was hard to wrap my still more Western brain around it. And so I've done some training work in TCM and there are a number of elements from it that I've incorporated into my everyday and but I would I would probably I would say I've probably only scraped the tip of the iceberg with the whole system. So I'm I'm no expert in speaking here. Um it's a very it's a complex system and obviously very old, so there's a lot to learn. But um, I want to talk a little bit about its, its anatomy. So Chinese medicine has a five element theory and a yin yang theory. And there are five elements within us, and these correspond to natural elements. So there's fire, earth, water, wood, and metal. 
And these five elements are then associated with the Earth's seasons. And but summer is split into two elements. So there's four seasons for five elements. And with yin yang, many of us are more familiar, I imagine. This is this is about an inherent dynamism that exists in the environment. Okay, with, with two polarities in constant flux. So the, the visual symbol of this, of course, is two larger black and white teardrop-like shapes mirroring each other. And each has within its very center this heart, a small dot of the opposite color. And this represents the TCM concept that even within each polarity, there is the seed of the other, right? So even in the depth of darkness, there is a spark of light. And both light and dark are necessary for balance. They comprise wholeness and there's inherent interconnection, right? One needs the other. And both the five element theory and the yin-yang theories are derived from this understanding that what we observe in the external environment mirrors the internal one. So through this lens, we are nature and nature is us. And Chinese medicine also assigns primary emotions to body parts and organs to the elements and, and thus the seasons. And some of you might already be familiar with some of this or have heard these nebulous concepts about these associations, but didn't know their origins. So for our purposes today, I'll just say we have just come through autumn, which is associated with grief and the lungs. And we're newly into winter which is associated with fear. Winter is ruled by the element of water. And there are several body parts and organs for this season also, but we'll touch on the kidneys and the bladder and maybe a little bit the ears. So with all of these aspects of Chinese medicine, the idea is that just as in nature, there's a symbiotic relationship between all the parts. Each serves a function, and the intention is to live according to the cycles of the seasons, to keep all the elements and aspects in balance. Because when there's imbalance, there is dysfunction. Yeah. Okay, so the element of water. Water is the most essential function for life and nourishment. And in terms of energy reserves, TCM asserts that water holds um, much of people's energy reserves. And much of people's energy is contained in the water element and so this is why rest is so important in winter, because we can easily deplete ourselves when we're already in a state of conservation, right? 
and water signifies flow. This is the wisdom of water. So it moves effortlessly. It takes the shape of whatever contains it, whatever then directs it. And there is ease in water. And yet it's also powerful when it's channeled in certain ways, like with rivers or waterfalls, right? So the banks of the river give the water its shape and its intensity and flow. And there's, so there's this ease in water and there's depth, darkness, mystery to water. So this is where the fear aspect comes in. Like fear is essential to us. It serves this purpose of helping keep us alive. But when it's imbalanced or in excess, as I say in TCM, excess or deficient, but in excess, we then experience phobias, excess fear, paranoia. And we can experience stuckness and smallness through fear of moving and expanding. Right? And we can experience a lack of courage. So these are some of the emotions, yeah? And in TCM, the kidneys and the urinary bladder are associated with water. And if we think about our Western scientific perspective, again, we understand that both of these play a role in fluid regulation in our bodies. But in TCM, the kidneys are of primary importance. They're understood to be the storehouse of our vital essence, what they call gene. So the kidneys are like this igniter of all the processes and functions within the entire body, mind, and spirit. So if you've heard of chi or life force energy, TCM understands the kidneys are responsible for driving this energy. Right? And these are associated with fear right, in the season and water. So overall, there's this understanding that the energy of the winter season, it's contained. It's deep and it's potent. And we go inward and we rest and we align with the ease and the flow of water in order for us to regulate body and spirit, right? Through water regulation, we're supporting kidney, which drives our chi, our life force energy and through emotional regulation. Yeah. So there's work going on in winter internally, but overall the energy is collected. You know, it's, it's held in reserve in preparation for spring. And the work it's doing uh, is really of restoring the self. All right, so coming back to autumn, and the elements of metal emotion, um, sorry, the elements of metal, the emotion of grief and the lungs, the body part of the lungs. 
So I was talking last episode about how I've been personally carrying a lot of grief and heaviness through the holiday season. And I'd been hearing and reading a lot of that from people around me too. And I'd been and had been and still am feeling this sense of grief and heaviness in the collective. And through the lens of TCM, this is exactly appropriate for us at this time of year to be in this kind of flow or communion with grief and pain. And if we come back to the science of emotions as energy that is designed to move, and we think, how do we move, how do we commonly move grief through our bodies? One way is through our tears. And in our tears are trace metals, iron, copper, aluminum, etc. And so if we think of the flow between seasons, in this case of metal with water, we might understand metal as flowing into or through water, autumn to winter. Our waters, our tears, carry our metal. And those of us who have menstrual cycles have these other waters of blood, which includes iron. So there's this natural association, yeah? And if grief is the emotion of metal, we might see how water carries grief. I was, uh, I was talking last time also about how I'd found myself crying like every single day for more than two weeks straight. And I was just, I was navigating a lot of really heavy shit and a fuck ton of grief. And interestingly, this two week period exactly straddled the winter, sol- the winter solstice, you know, this nexus of autumn and winter. And I remember just having this intuitive hit at one point when I was like, why the fuck can't I stop crying? (laughs) And like, why all this extreme heaviness in my chest and my body? And from somewhere inside me, I just received this message like, this water is cleansing. It's clearing the channels. It's moving energy through you, out of you. This is as it should be. And so I softened into that. You know, I just allowed the waters to flow when they wanted to and just was with them. And it was cathartic. And it did clear some channels. And I was also experiencing this heaviness in my chest. So... As I said, grief is associated with the lungs. So we can also move the energy of grief through our breath. Or conversely, if we're not allowing our grief energy to flow, we may experience a sense of uh, restriction or accumulate a kind of weight in the lungs, in the chest. And that can present as this kind of 
difficulty to breathe deeply, like into the belly and uh, into the diaphragm and the belly. Instead, these more, these shallower, kind of more activating, possibly system stressing breaths, rather than deeper, slower, calmer ones. So I've noticed, I found myself over these weeks naturally drawn to doing more breath work and breath tending. Like uh, just this, this intuitive lead kind of liberate some of this weighty energy and stuckness and just the bigness and overwhelm of my grief and pain that was keeping me from moving and flowing in a lot of ways. So hopefully with all of this, we can begin to conceptualize this Chinese medicine like interplay of emotions with physiology and psychology and environment and this kind of symbiosis that mirrors in many ways how we understand ourselves through the lens of conventional medicine and science. And we're just applying a different set of filters to the same phenomena. And maybe in doing that, we can see ourselves and understand ourselves a little differently. And what I think is really beautiful about the Chinese medicine lens, you know, and some of these other older traditions and technologies as well, is the integration of us and our systems with nature. And this recognition and honoring that we are nature in different energetic form. So let's talk more about being and working with grief and, and fear and pain and things. If we think about the core of grief, grief is what we're left with when something falls away or transitions or dies. Right? Like love, people, relationships, careers. And what is autumn, if not the season of transition, of falling away, of shedding what no longer serves? Like the trees and the plants shed. And from there, they tend to what's left and they go inward, incubate, and slowly metabolize. And then it's in spring, we begin to see outwardly what's been transmuted, what, as they're seemingly reborn. So this is where we're coming from seasonally. Um, and everything comes from the dark, right? We come from the dark. there's at some point a spark and from that we grow so more and more i'm seeing winter as a kind of original season or core like core essence 
even though it's all circular dynamic, you know, because again, this is the nature of energy, but that we are, that we are born from the dark. And so grief being what remains is I think a kind of core emotion. And while I think it's really important that we acknowledge and learn to be with all of our emotions and feelings, grief is one that we really, really need to befriend and learn to honor like, if we want to live fully. If we want to live fully inhabiting the wholeness that we already actually are, it's essential. One of my favorite descriptors of grief is that grief is the price we pay for love. Grief is the price we pay for love. And my long and meandering explorations now through life, through science and spirit, these have all brought me to this understanding that love is the very essence of the universe. It, like, yeah, it turns out <laughs> all those teachers and what all those wisdom teachers and traditions say. And my understanding is that capital L love this is the word that we use to describe the universal animating force or consciousness, which is to me that of pure creative potential and awareness. So it's, it's another word for our, our very orientation, our design, which is that of expansion. We are designed to expand and grow. The universe itself is expanding. So as I understand, love is essentially the energy of expansion. It is in the all and it is the all. Because quantum science tells us that energy is the essence of the universe. And grief is the price we pay for being in and with the all. Feeling grief shows that we have loved and we have been loved. And isn't that what we all really want? Like, I believe we are here in bodies, embodied to experience the miracle and the gift of feeling, feeling all of the things, light and shadow. And it's feeling our, our wholeness through a five senses reality and just experiencing the beauty of that. And this is how I understand the essence of Tantra and animism, which are 
infused into a lot of my worldview and, and my creative expression. And that's that there's this universal consciousness in all things and aspects. And therefore, everything is a reflection of the one. It's universal consciousness experiencing itself. And if there is only oneness, ultimately, then everything is necessary and everything is an aspect of source or the divine. This, this kind of understanding is infused into many indigenous wisdom and spiritual traditions, uh, Tantra, as I just said, and Buddhism. And it's also now energy science, quantum science. Okay, which is to say, our new science is old science. So, I want to drop in now to talking a little bit more about uh, my personal story. And opening that by saying that I've been companions, I would say, with grief for going on 11 years now, which was when my father died. Um, I was 31 and was cracked all the way open by this loss. And I was consumed with this grief like I had never known. And after a period of trying to resist, let's say, this period of resistance, trying to resist, fully feeling it all, I eventually allowed it. And this experience, this being like fully cracked open like this, it began to reveal an incredible amount of unprocessed pain and trauma and grief and fucking resentment and rage and all of this emotional residue from the first 20 or so years of my life. A lot of stuff that I had, that I'd repressed and dissociated from that had gone unconscious and and sat I would learn festering inside me for decades and some of it I was aware of and uh, I'd been working with some of this and through some of this but there was so much in there that has run so deep you know and I'm here all these years later and and still working to allow it and to hold some of it and to you know uh, metabolize it and as i connect the dots looking back i realized that that period this that that cracking open from this extremely traumatic event this was this was the beginning 
actually, of my living and embodied life. Of beginning this long process of coming home to myself again and truly awakening to my life. And because, because it was such a, a big thing for me, I, you know, I expect we're going to be doing a lot of talking about pain and grief here. Um, and so much has come through as a consequence of that. And, you know, some of you may be wondering, and now I know two of three episodes so far on, on a show called The Luminous Slow why we keep talking about all this darkness and this heavy, depressing shit. And the, the short answer is that I have learned that it's, it's our ignorance of this darkness and what it holds and our fears or our unwillingness to go into those depths that act as a barrier to a lot of us experiencing and inhabiting our luminosity, which is what I understand to be our intrinsic radiance and vitality health. So remember, I should say you may remember, in episode zero, I talked about how the human body produces about 10,000 times more light energy than what is on the surface of the sun. And while we produce that, we can't see or feel most of that because it is contained within billions of black holes in our body by our atoms, within the atoms. So this is the literal sense of what we contain. Our essence, this light energy contained in the blackness. And I don't imagine a lot of us walk around and seem to be radiant to others, right? Like, I don't feel like I encounter a lot of truly vibrant people. But some of us are. And when someone in our presence has an inner radiance that is, that's clear and strong enough to be felt outwardly, it's powerful, right? Like maybe their eyes and their skin glow or seem to glow. And maybe they look like they've just had the best fucking orgasms of their life and there's this aura and we're mesmerized by it, and it's magnetic, and we want to be near them, and we want to just imbibe of that, or we want to be like them, right? We're like, I want some of what he's having. So I imagine that a lot of us have probably understood this phenomenon to be more esoteric, or woo-woo, or whatever, auras and shit like this, but but now we know it's energy science it's quantum physics like we're light energy through and through but 
more metaphorically for a moment, I think our, our unfelt, unprocessed pain and grief and fear, it acts as this kind of residue that accumulates. You know, we imagine window panes or facets of us, that this residue accumulates on us that we might not even realize is there and that prevents a lot of the inner glow, all that life force energy and its warmth and its nourishment from coming through from our depths. It's impeding our living the fullness of our lives and our expression. So while it's very fucking uncomfortable and can be scary and hard, to be with our pain, it's essential. All right, friends, this is where we're going to break between part one, part two. We turn into the second half is where I'll drop into the specifics around some of my early life experiences and working with some of these emotions and bodily experiences that we've been talking about here in part one somatic applications and different medicine practices and just otherwise weaving together some of the threads that we've been following here. So I will see you on the other side.